you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, I hope you do love your work. You know, I spoke earlier today to a group of uh, graduating students from Belmont University who are a little disappointed about what they're finding out here in the workplace. Now, I'm talking to college seniors. A lot of them have had the illusion fed to them for four years as they have continued to borrow money for student loan debt and go through the classes sitting on their fannies in a classroom thinking they're getting ready for the workplace and now disappointed because people in the workplace are saying, well, hey, what can you do? Show me your experience. What are you able to do that helps us meet our goals? It's not just a matter of, ooh, you got that fancy piece of paper in your hand. Come on in. Employers don't have the patience or the time to deal with that for the most part. I know that's frustrating. So it becomes a catch-22. It's how do I get experience if nobody will hire me? And if nobody will hire me, how do I get experience? Well, there are a lot of ways to do that. I hope you're creative enough, no matter where you are, in the path of work and career to figure out how to show people your value, whether that's as an intern or as a volunteer or as doing things on the side and being able to document the things that you're able to create, write, produce, do something. People want to know what you can do, not just where you went to school or where you got a degree or what kind of degree it was. And just a grim reminder of the reality of the workplace, but I know it's frustrating for people coming into the workplace to, to see that. But, you know, here, here's another part of the equation. A recent study shows that 72, well, here, let me start with this. Walmart is the nation's largest employer without question. You know what they're finding? They're finding they can hire people all day long, but you know what they can't do? They can't find people they can promote into management. Now, not even that everybody's standing there with their hand raised, you know, pick me. No, it's actually the opposite. They approach people about promoting them and the the kids say, nah, that's okay. I'll just stay where I am. They don't want the responsibility. They don't want to have to really commit to something that much. They don't want to be the disciplinarian with the people who were yesterday, their peers and cohorts. They don't want it. They're just saying, nah, that's all right. It promotes somebody else. I mean, it's a, it's a really big malady that Walmart and certainly other employers are looking at where kids don't have the same kind of sense of loyalty and commitment. They're just there to get a paycheck. Yeah. Give me the paycheck and I'll go home. You know, don't worry about making me a part of the team. Don't expect me to be loyal. So it's not unexpected that employers are gun shy with Gen Y. Now Gen Y are those 17 to 32 years old. There's a 75 million of them. So there's a whole big group, but they have different kind of work ethic. And a lot of us old folks do. Now, here's the other thing that is well known and gives employers pause. And that is 72% of college students say they want to be entrepreneurs. They say while they're studying, they don't want a traditional job. So if that's the mentality out there, what incentive is there for an employer to say, oh, please come to work for me? Well, you know, it doesn't work like that. So the combination of those things makes it very challenging for those coming into the workplace to find a place where they really can 
provide value and where they're given opportunity. Well, this is Dan Miller. This is the 48 Days Online radio show. We're going to be going through your questions today, looking at questions that uh, will help all of us learn about how to do what we do a little bit better and move up a little bit more in that ladder of success. If, in fact, that's where we're going, from what I just described, some people are ready to stay at the bottom rung. They aren't really interested in going to the next level. But I know for many of you listening, you still do want to Increase your responsibility, your contribution, and your financial rewards. I'm going to talk a little bit about when do we lose our optimism. Got an interview with my granddaughter that I'm going to share. When do we lose our optimism? And I'll tell you why I've titled it that. Here's some of the questions. Can I be a successful salesman with a low D on the DISC personality inventory? Low D, that means somebody is not domineering, aggressive, opinionated, hard-driving, that kind of, if you're not that, can you be a salesperson? Well, we'll talk about that. Yes, you can, incidentally, but I'll tell you why. What do you do with your excess books and audio programs? Well, I'll tell you exactly what I do with them and how you can get them for free. Should I respond to all the job offers I'm getting or stay loyal to my current boss? Well, again, we got some tricky dynamics we're going to unpack today. I'm a music teacher in a rural area and I'm considering becoming a piano tuner. What do you think? I feel like my job is getting in the way of what I want to be doing. Do you, this is an interesting question here. Do you need to be an expert in the field you're in to be an effective leader? That's a great question. Worded in a way that really kind of makes us scratch our head, but there's more beneath the surface on that. So here's our quotation for the day. This comes from Napoleon Hill, who said the strongest oak of the forest is not the one that is protected from the storm and hidden from the sun. It's the one that stands in the open where it is compelled to struggle for its existence against the winds and rains and the scorching sun. Interesting kind of visual picture there. How you get to be a strong tree? You have to have some battles to fight. How do you get to be strong as an individual? You have to have some challenges. If it's always been easy, you're never going to be excellent or extraordinary. Just the way that it goes. Now, my granddaughter, Clara, you hear me talk about her frequently on here. She comes down here to the sanctuary with her mother every Wednesday morning for an art class. Now, here's how this kind of unfolded. Originally, my daughter Ashley would bring Clara just as kind of a convenient babysitter to give her little sister a break and her husband a break. And so she brought her down here. Clara knows her way around our property. She can do anything she wants to. Has a free run of the place. Clara's four years old, incidentally. So it was just kind of to create a diversion for Clara. But Clara got involved in the art classes. She wanted her own piece of canvas. She wanted her own paints and brushes. And all of a sudden, she's participating in the art class. She listens to the art teacher. She does her own art piece. But here's where it differs. Now, what does a, what does a 45-year-old woman do when she draws a tree on a piece of canvas? Now, come on. You know where I'm going with this. You know what happens. She draws a step back and says, oh, geez. You know, it's not really straight on the left-hand side. I I should have used a different color of green. Boy, that little path coming down through there, you can't tell if that's a river or if that's a road. You know what Clara does when she draws something? She stands back and says, wow, that's awesome. I'm really good. Now, where do we cross the line when we lose that kind of optimism about what it is we're able to do? Where is it that when we, that we start to then question 
I can't really do that very well. No, I can't do this. I can't do that. I'm no good at that. I mean, why do we move so quickly into that kind of position where we que- if we question what it is we do and the value of our work, why should somebody else see it as having value? Shouldn't we be our own biggest cheerleader? Well, I know there's a whole lot of things that are thrown in here. We're taught not to be egotist and not to promote ourselves. And, you know, from a, a theological standpoint, sometimes we're taught to be, you know, we're worms, we're dust, we're maggots, we're no good. Well, we don't have time to unpack all of that. But frankly, I find it really refreshing to see the optimism in a four-year-old. And I think, where do we lose that? Well, I've got a little interview here that I want to play you with Clara. I brought Clara into my office and just, just ask her some questions. Now, you never know what she's going to respond, but believe me, she's never at a loss for words. She always has a clear opinion. Let me have you listen to my interview with my daughter, Clara, who's four years old. Now, I have a special guest with me in my office today, and it happens to be my special granddaughter, and she's going to tell us a little bit about herself. So tell us your name. C-L-A-R-A. So your name is Clara, and you chose to spell it instead of say it. That's all right. Very good. Where do you live? In Fieldcrest Drive. And what city is that in? In Nashville, Tennessee. Very good. Now, Clara, I know we talk about this a lot. What are you going to do when you grow up? Change the world. Change the world. I love it. And how are you going to do that? I know you've thought about some of the kind of jobs you'd like to have. What kind of work would you like to do when you grow up to change the world? Um, plant flowers. Plant flowers? Don't you say, okay, awesome. Now, speaking of flowers, I know you're here at the sanctuary today as part of a painting class along with your mommy, and you do some beautiful painting. Are you an artist? Yes. Why do you think you're an artist? What makes it, what lets us know? How, how would I know that you really are an artist? Um, I do pretty paintings. You do. And when I, you do paintings, you can also tell me about them, can't you? You can tell me why you painted what you did. Well, here's one final question for you, Clara. This is a big question. Where are you and I going to go to lunch now? Taco Bell. Where do we go every Wednesday after your art class and after my podcast? Taco Bell! <laughs> and there you have the rest of the story. Well, there's my granddaughter. Isn't that a fresh optimism to hear that in a little child? You know, and, I, and again, I stand back and I wonder, where do we start to lose that? Why do I run into so many adults who question everything they do, question the value of everything they do, and then wonder why there's no opportunities out there? If you are your own worst critic, chances are you're going to find the world starts to agree with you. If you are your own biggest cheerleader, chances are that's contagious as well. People will start to see the value in what you do, start to get excited about what you bring to the workplace. And we see that, and it's one of the things I told uh, this group of college students this morning is work on your personal skills more than your academic skills. People aren't as concerned about what book you read and if you can regurgitate what was in the book 
as they are about looking at you and saying, do I want this person on my team? Is this somebody that's fun to be around? Is this somebody that's going to fit in here well? Work on those skills. Well, let's go to some of the questions. Gary from Minnesota says, my question to you, Dan, is about personality profiles like the DISC. I've taken a few of these for various job and training opportunities. On the DISC, I'm low D, high S and C, and average, or high, high I and S, and average C. I'm in print sales, and I like it. However, I feel this may shed light on why my sales are not where I'd like them to be. I have also missed opportunities and been told that maybe sales isn't for me because of the results of these assessments. I do have the results and I find them very useful. My question is, since they are, these are personality overviews, is it possible to overcome what others say are shortcomings or am I fighting what is natural in order to be something I'm not? Got a great question, Gary. Now, again, just to recap on the disc, the D-I-S-C-D is dominance. So if somebody's high in that, they're very outgoing, assertive, bold, daring, opinionated, high pressure salesperson. So you know the type. I somebody who's very influencing or somebody who's against social gregarious talks to everybody, breaks the silence in the elevator, that kind of person as somebody who's steady, likes to keep things the same way. They're good listeners, compassionate, nurturing. Somebody who's high in C is very good with detail analysis, systems, methods, that kind of person. Now the key here is not, are you good in sales or are you not? The key is, are you matching the kind of sales required with the personality you know you have? That's exactly what we're looking at. So if you are high in D, you're very aggressive, and high, then you can be extremely successful with cars, real estate, furniture, jewelry. I mean, look at that. For the most part, those things are one contact where you better sell somebody when they walk in. If somebody comes on a car lot, you talk to them about a car. If they leave, chances are absolutely nil that they're going to come back. If you don't close them, then you're not going to get that sale. Car salesmen know that. So they better be pretty assertive. And when you say, Jim, I'm going to go think about it. They're going to say, what would it take for you to be comfortable making a decision today? And so they're going to address that. They're going to handle every objection five different ways. They're going to move you through that process. You may feel pressure depending on your personality, but that's what they do well to succeed in that kind of sales. If you're not high on D, then that is not the kind of selling that you want to do. If you're high on INS, then you want something that's much more relationship oriented, where you see the same people time and time again. So if you're in print sales, now here's how that can vary even within the same industry. If you're in print sales, but you're going out here and you're not, you're expected to knock on 30 doors today because you're knocking on little businesses to see if they need letterhead and business cards, you're going to have a hard time with that kind of selling. However, if you are in print supplies, print sales, and you're calling on printers, so you're calling on 20 printers in your town, your city, the same people that you saw last week, you're going to visit again this week. They know you're coming. They know what your product lines are. That would be a great fit for you with high I and S. So you can be successful in selling no matter what kind of personality you have, as long as you match the opportunity with your personality. That's what you have to do. Great question. Titus from St. Louis says, I'm a regional airline pilot and enjoy flying, but being gone from home is starting to get old. I'd like to start a business on the side and keep flying. My goal for now would be to get to a point that my business is making enough money that I could drop a couple of trips a month. 
I do like that I'm able to fly for free or really cheap anywhere in the world. And at this point, I don't want to quit my job, just make my quality of life better. My schedule is usually four days on, and then I have about three to four days off. What advice do you have? What would be some good businesses to look into starting? Well, you're in a great position to have those three or four days off in a row give you a wonderful box of time to build a real business. Now, with those, obviously, you could do any one of an infinite number of online businesses. You could... You could have vending machines. I mean, that would be a legitimate kind of approach. I worked with a fireman one time years ago, and he had much the same kind of work scenario as you. He would be on for four days and then off for three or four. That was rotating, so he couldn't do anything that required regular daily commitment, but he had those time periods. Well, he got a whole bunch of vending machines and put them out so he could go around the kind he had. Actually, he needed to check about every six weeks, so he had a a really big route that he established. He would go around and check his machines, restock, collect the money, and he could do that whenever his days off happened to, to, happened to fall. And that's a good fit, vending. You could consult in an area of expertise that you have. You could write and speak. Those are things that you could schedule around what you've got. Um, I just got a note from a former airline pilot today, client of mine, and he and his wife got a Cruise One franchise. So the transition, and he transitioned all the way out of being an airline pilot. He transitioned into helping people book their cruises, and that's what he does. Been doing that now for several years. Uh, Justin Lucas Savage, who you may see on 48days.net, and he was an airline pilot. He transitioned into business coaching, and when that became so profitable, then he as well quit his airline pilot work totally. So a lot of things you can do. As you move away from, or even as you continue doing what you're doing, but having those three to four days in a block together is a great setup for having your own sideline business. Well, that's just a transition. We aren't finished yet, but that is a transition to let you know we're listening to Dan Miller, 48 Days Online Radio. You're listening to questions from real people like you, the listeners out there. If you've got a question, just go to the 48days.com site, click on the podcast link, and you'll see an opportunity for you to put your question in. I'd be happy to entertain that for an upcoming show. Laura from Greenville, South Carolina says, Dan, I'm 18 years old, and I love your podcast. I've been listening off and on for a while now. I remember that you mentioned different people in your podcast, and in particular, the artist who did your granddaughter's portrait in words what we call word trait. I'm an artist and violinist. I'm trying to raise money to go to the Lamplighter Guild in New York. One of the ways I'm trying to earn the money is by selling prints of my artwork via my Facebook page. Um, describe some of the things that she's done. She had a piece that won best of show. I hope you'll take a look at my page. I did, Laura. I looked at your page and I looked at the Lamplighter Guild. That is, it's described as an entrepreneurial platform whereby masters will inspire a high level of excellence, which uniquely reflects the image of God. It looks like a wonderful, wonderful program. What a great opportunity. And I commend you on taking the initiative to make sure that you're going to be there. And and you're not out here just asking for money. You're doing things. You're being innovative. You're selling something. Rather than just asking for money, you're on a great path and i think you've got the opportunity to to do well to thrive in your artistic endeavors congratulations alan from west virginia says dan really enjoy your podcast and your common sense approach to your answers 
You mentioned on a recent podcast about the investment we should make in ourselves regarding self-development, which I agree, and that you receive an almost daily delivery from Amazon with new books, audio programs, and such. Having been to the sanctuary, I know you have an office full of books, but if you're like me, you end up with way more material than you have space for. My question is, after you've gone through the material, what do you do with it? Shelve it, store it, or give it away. I give it away, and I do. I get lots and lots of books that I order, books that I want to read, that I hear about. I order books pretty much every day, but I'm also sent a lot of books from publishers and then from new authors who send me things as well. So yes, I could never store the continuing accumulation of books, audio programs, and things that I give. What I do, Alan, and maybe I missed this when you were here, but what I do is I've got a bookcase, a large bookcase in the open area of the sanctuary where we have our right to the bank, our coaching with excellence events out there. There is a bookcase and anything on that bookcase is free for the taking to anybody who attends one of our live events. So I try to always announce that and anything there people take that works really well. That allows me to pretty well stay cleaned out those shelves that disappears. If I have anything that stays there for two months or whatever, then I may donate it to a library, but I haven't done that in a long time because people do take pretty much everything that I put out there. Uh, now people aren't greedy and just take bushels of things, but people do select things they think will help them. And the things I get, you know, are for the most part, very well done, very helpful. Now I keep a lot of things and I do add bookshelves even in my office, but yeah, you know, I don't keep things indefinitely. I mean, business books that I really valued 10 years ago are likely to show up out there on the giveaway shelf because things change. And I go through authors that I, whose work I really enjoy. And then when somebody else comes along, I may switch. So I'm always going through material, but that's what I do with it. I give it away to people that come here to the sanctuary and give away tons of it. Terry from Nevada, Las Vegas says, Dan, I'm having the best problem in the world. I have a web, I've been a web developer for seven years, worked in some really cool places in the past. I'm currently employed at a marketing agency where the people are nice. The money is great, but the workflow for the past year has been very bad. I've been here for exactly one year. The issue is that I'm getting so many other offers for interviews, literally at least one a day. Some of them look extremely cutting edge and interesting, but I feel bad about interviewing at other places and about considering other options because the people here are so amazingly nice. And the owner is such a family guy who will give out his heart for this place. Should I let nature take its course and move on to the next thing? Or should I give the place a chance? Okay, I know you said, should I give this place a chance? I just couldn't, it just popped in my mind immediately. Give peace a chance. Well, here's the deal. You're at the job where you are because it's the absolute best place for you to be. I mean, that's the way it should be, right? Because it's the very best place you know on the face of the earth for you to be. But now as you mature, as you develop your skills, expand your network, it's natural that you'll have better opportunities. So yes, 
you do need to explore the new opportunities. Now, you don't need to burn any bridges, but at least explore. Know what your marketability is. If the workflow is bad, now, now think about this a little bit. Just going from what you said here, the workflow has been really bad where you are. If the workflow is really bad where you are, your boss may be struggling. He may be feeling guilty. He may be feeling obligated to keep you in the job even when he can't afford it or it's no longer a fit. See, no one wins if you stay out of obligation. Everyone wins if it's the best place for you and you're the best person for the position. I mean, it ought to be good from both sides. If either side is compromising, then it's absolutely time to explore new options. Now, I, I used to have... When, back in the days when I had lots of employees, you know, I'd have somebody come to me and said, man, you know, Dan, I've got this really cool opportunity with a company. I can double my pay, but, you know, I'm not going to take it because, you know, you, you're the one that you know, saw me through thick and thin. You saw me through the personal challenges I was having. You let me, you know, hide my car in your garage when I was going through a divorce. You took me to training seminars. So I'm going to stay here. Well, my response was, no, you're not. If you get an opportunity to double your pay and something that really fits you, something you're excited about, you need to go do that. And sometimes people would be surprised at my response. If I talk somebody into staying when they know they've got a better opportunity, it's nothing but a Band-Aid solution. And again, it's not good for anybody. They're going to end up resenting it. That's not the way that it ought to be done. Unless I can make it the best opportunity for you right there. I'm going to encourage you to go ahead and go. And I think a healthy boss would do the same. Nope. You need to explore the new opportunities coming your way. If you're that hot a prospect and you're getting offers like that, absolutely. You explore those and choose the best one for the next season of your life. Now doing that, I mean, that means that then you really do a professional job search and you select something where you know you're going to make a commitment for two or three years. And you don't go to the next really great job because they pay you $100,000. And then six weeks later, you get another offer for 150 And so you change again. No, you'll be damaged goods if you start to do that. But if you've been at a place for a significant period of time and then you make another decision, you're going to be there for two or three years. That's a reasonable career path. And anybody would in, encourage you in that. Jennifer says, uh, I'm a music teacher in a rural area and I'm considering becoming a piano tuner. I bought the materials and I'm learning it quickly and easily. I'm looking for some advice to gauge where the market is, but what have, but have had some contrasting input in the five years I've worked here. I only know of one other tuner who doesn't advertise is booked weeks in advance and covers about a hundred miles. I also know a lady who has a man drive three hours from Charlotte to come tune her piano and internet searches only show a couple technicians listed in the area. But I've been told by a local music dealer that everyone's buying keyboards now and music shops everywhere are closing. Does this sound like there's plenty of work to be done? Or so little that one person can meet the needs of everyone in the area? Well, music tuning is one of the things that I have listed in the 48 low-cost business ideas. I mean, it's amazing. I think it's an amazing opportunity, frankly. But in there, I talk about the fact it's estimated that every third house in America has a piano and pianos should be tuned once or twice a year. I mean, that makes an amazingly big audience out there. Now, does everybody tune their piano once or twice a year? No. But if you showed up, if you gave them some rationale for doing that, 
then perhaps they would. I think there's a big market out there. Never stop doing something just because people who are already doing it tell you it can't be done because that's all they're telling you. If you want to get into the music industry and you talk to somebody and they say, Oh no, you know, it's impossible. It can't be done. All that's telling you is they couldn't do it. When I talk to authors who say, why would you write a book? You know, publishing is going down the tubes. People are getting information in other ways. They don't buy books anymore. All that tells me is they couldn't do it. So be careful about taking your information and advice from people who have not been successful in doing it. When I, I opened an auto accessories business once years and years ago, I talked to the two companies who were already providing aftermarket accessories for the new car dealers. Both of them told me absolutely it couldn't be done. They said there's not enough work to go around. The dealers don't pay on time. Nobody wants accessories, nothing but bad news. I researched it, talked to the dealers directly myself, went ahead and did it anyway, and the success was overwhelming and immediate. I think there's plenty of opportunity. If you live near Asheville, North Carolina, and there's only a couple people doing piano tuning, I think the market is ripe and wide open. However, you need to understand what you're going to do for your marketing. How are you going to let people know about that? How are you going to find those prospects? So you need to do that. You can't just get the training and then sit back hoping the phone rings. So if you do your part, though, I think it's a great opportunity. Cassie from uh, Illinois says, Dan, in your book, 48 Days to the Work You Love, you talk about the wheel of life and seven areas for achievement. Could you elaborate on these concepts? Yes. I mean, in as much as I talk a lot about work and work being an important part of our lives, I always quickly frame it that work is simply one tool for a successful life. It's certainly not the only criteria. So in 48 days, the work you love, I talk about finances, social, family, physical, personal development, spiritual, and career. And I purposely make career the very end, the very last one we talk about because a career ought to be a reflection of what you want as success in those other areas. Now, nobody, if they have amazing success in their career and amazing success financially. If they have left a trail along the way of broken relationships, heartache, physical illness. I mean, we don't want to trade places with a person like that. Success is not just about knocking it out of the park in one area. So yes, I very much look for the wheel of life success in finances, socially in family, physically and personal development, spiritually and in career all those areas those are all things where you want to be nurturing your own success well this is dan meller in the 48 days online radio show music tells us we're just transitioning between questions here if you've got a question i'd be happy to entertain that just shoot your question in go to the 48days.com site you'll see a podcast link Click on that, you'll see a little box open up and you can ask your question there. So send that in to me or you can just send it to askdan at 48days.com. Nathan says, from Fort Wayne, Nathan says, following your advice, I've spent the last five months building the business that I love and have proven to work. The problem is I also work full-time in local government and feel compelled to stay on as my boss is up for re-election this year. 
After the election, I can move on to other things, but not right now. Working both jobs has burned me out and sapped my energy, not to mention taking a toll on my family. I'm not sure what I should do. Looking for an and option doesn't seem to be working. Is it normal to get burned out when starting a new business? Things I loved, I now hate because I think it's only, but I think it's only because I'm so tired. Wow. Well, Nathan, look at the long term. Anybody that is, ends up extraordinarily successful has a long time perspective. And we see this real easily financially. Somebody who makes 10 bucks an hour, they think Friday to Friday, get a paycheck on Friday. Boom. The money's gone on Monday. They start all over again. When somebody starts to make sixty, seventy thousand dollars a year, they start to think year to year. You know, next year we're going to open a Roth IRA. Next year we're going to take the family to Disneyland. Next year we're going to go on a cruise. When you talk to people who are making quarter of a million dollars or more, they always think in five to ten year increments. They're planning out farther. Now, with that, we've got kind of a chicken and the egg. We see which comes first. You think, well, if I were making three hundred thousand dollars a year, it'd be easy for me to think in five year terms. Well, what we find is that people start planning the long term money starts to show up unexpectedly so make sure you're thinking long term now with what you're describing just think long term look at how short this transition is that you're talking about really in the scope of in the scope of life keep doing both now we're already in april here approaching may and we're talking november elections so that's a really short time frame i would encourage you to keep doing both certainly you don't want to unplug either one you say you feel connected and what's going on there in your current job and don't want to leave there so that's fine but also be aggressive about ramping up your own business so when the election happens and you are free to go you already have a full-blown business ready to walk into i mean how exciting so yeah you don't want to continue doing things that sap your energy and steal time from your family and for your own physical well-being over a long period of time. But if that's four or five months, you can do that. You can make that work. And I think that's a trek that you're on. I encourage you to do that. Steve from West Virginia, from Virginia says, oh no, from Washington says, in your opinion, now this is an interesting framing of a question here. In your opinion, do you need to be an expert in the field you're in to be an effective leader? To clarify, I don't mean familiarity and general knowledge of the space, but a true nuts and bolts expert. I've been a software development manager for over 10 years, and while my programming skills have atrophied from years building and leading successful teams, I feel that my leadership skills are top-notch. Problem is that when I interview for new positions, I'm often asked to do a coding test. On a whiteboard, I must admit that I often fail and subsequently am not hired. But I think these companies are really missing out on my skills as a leader. I've dedicated many years of my career to becoming an effective leader and not to maintaining my programming skills, maybe to my career's detriment. Boy, that's a great question. But Steve, I I would encourage you keep interviewing. I think the companies that want to confine you to programming aren't seeing your greatest value. But now that is kind of a key to where I'm going with this. You need to convey really clearly where your greatest value is. Don't position yourself, even on your resume, where it identifies and pigeonholes you as a programmer. Identify the fact that you have moved into leadership. You are into managing teams, to nurturing relationships, to encouraging, inspiring, persuading. I mean, those are things that have way more value than programming. 
But if you're being asked to do coding, then it appears that companies that are interviewing see you as a programmer. So again, make sure that your resume is a sales brochure for where you want to go, not just a chronological snapshot of where you've been. And I suspect that maybe you're emphasizing coding and programming too much in the preview to the interview. So make sure they know they're interviewing you as a leader. Pick up a copy of uh, my buddy Dave Ramsey's new book, Entree Leadership. If you understand those principles and can talk in that language, it'll help position you as a leader as well. Great question. Trevor from Canada says, I heard in one of your podcasts, you don't charge by the hour for coaching. I've done freelance work for years and found the beauty of charging for the project, not the hours, but I don't understand how this would work for coaching. Can you explain this a bit more? Sure. If someone is on a monthly program with me for coaching, we may have two 45 minute calls, but the emails are unlimited. I mean, my responses vary dramatically depending on where we are in the process. But yeah, think about the built in conflict when charging by the hour. I talked about this a couple weeks ago. I mean, if you're charging by the hour as a coach, your client doesn't want to talk about the playoff game last night or about the weather in their neck of the woods. They want meat and they may rush the conversation to push to try to get a quick solution. You, on the other hand, as a coach may see the value in having some casual conversation, uh, but you also at some level may want to keep them talking for three hours because you're being paid by the hour. So, yeah, I think it's a I think it's a counterproductive arrangement be paid by the hour as a coach and I don't offer that what I offer are packages now, even the very basic package that we call the bumblebee it's usually a two to three hour sit down interaction to look at a business idea and really try to help you shape it and see what you need to do to develop that now even there I mean some of those are going to be two hours and some are going to be four hours it's not a matter of boom you paid for this many hours it's still a matter of what do we need to really understand what you came in here to clarify? That's always the way that I approach it. But uh, my other, my upper level coaching programs, certainly they are not by the hour. And I would discourage you from offering that as a coach or from engaging in that. If you are a client, this comes from Rob. He says, Dan, thanks for your continuing to be an invaluable resource to my personal and professional development. You've helped to shift my mindset and my actions for the better. And I look forward to your weekly podcast books and programs. Well, thanks Rob. I have a question about using a recruiter. I'm in the, I'm currently in the process of completing a one year certification program as part of my attaining the certified financial planner designation. So he's going to be a CFP as I near completion. I plan to use the 48 days method to acquire employment. <coughs> what are your thoughts on using a recruiter or multiple recruiters to find employment. It would seem that this would be a significant modification from your plan. I want to get your thoughts on how it would work. I've never gotten a job using a recruiter, but I've wondered whether that would perhaps negotiate, they would perhaps negotiate a better salary or get me in front of more employers. Thanks. Right now, when I talk about recruiters in 48 days to the work you love, I always say, if you want to use them, fine, but don't ever make it more than maybe 10% of your job search process. There's too many red flags in using recruiters. Their interest is in helping you duplicate what you most recently did. That's the easiest way to position you. They don't want to go through the work of helping you redirect and maybe redefine who you are, what you're all about and what you want to do. So there's that. Also, they're going to shoehorn you into an opportunity that they have. 
Not that it's the best fit, but it's that's what they have available. And so they get compensated by matching somebody for that. So if they need to shoehorn you in, then that's part of the deal. Now, nothing wrong with recruiters, but just understand what it is they do and what you can do better. So keep that as a small part of your job search. Now, in your specific example, Rob, financial planners, financial planners I mean, fall into basically three groups. I mean, there's the fee for services where people who are in trouble or trying to manage your finances pay you for that, right? There's the independent salesman who's selling products. So an independent person, but they're selling, you know, insurance programs, annuities, mutual funds, and so on. And then there is an employee who is a financial planner, but is always going to be selling products, whether you work for a bank, mortgage company or whatever, you know, you're going to be selling products. So the only one that would even be applicable to using a recruiter would be option number three, where you are an employee selling products. That's not the direction most financial planners go. And to invest in the education required and all that, most, most financial planners want to be more independent, where they're going to choose either option one or option two for how they structure offering their services. If, in fact, you just want a job, and yeah, using a recruiter is okay. But, uh, again, that's kind of an unusual positioning for yourself as a financial planner. Financial planner, usually somebody sees themselves as being more independent. They're going to have their own business. They're going to be more entrepreneurial rather than just training to get a job somewhere. Well, let's go to a voicemail question here. Hi, Dan. I have a working invention for a homeopathic treatment of sinuses uh, or sinus blockage. Um, and I looked into getting this uh, device manufactured just for a prototype. It would cost me $20,000 for plastic injection molding. Uh, I'm not really wanting to spend that money, uh, that much money on just a prototype. So I wanted to get your advice on whether I should pitch this idea to a major corporation or should I keep plugging away at it to manu- to market it myself? And I'm David from Tennessee. Thank you. All right, David, thanks for your question. My answer has changed in the last two years. Prior to that, I would have said, don't waste your time going to a major corporation with your idea. They don't want outside ideas. They resist getting involved in the legalities of taking an idea from an outsider. So you have to develop a prototype and build some kind of an audience, prove the marketability of your idea on your own, no matter what that takes. However, there, that has changed somewhat. Companies are more open to crowdsourcing, as an example, where if they want to have a book cover design, they may put it out rather than just using their own in-house graphic designer. They'll put it out and let other people do that. And that extends to considering ideas that are brought to them by other people. Now, it's fairly complicated to do that, but it's very doable. What I want you to do is get a copy of Stephen Key's book, One Simple Idea. One Simple Idea, the subtitle is Turn Your Dreams into a Licensing Gold Mine While Letting Others Do the Work. Stephen is the master at doing what you're describing, having an idea taking it to a company even before it's fully developed and simply working out a licensing agreement. But he has, I mean, he really has all the forms, the documents and everything that you need to protect yourself. So I would encourage you to do that. And yeah, I would be very hesitant to encourage you to invest 
$20,000 just to get a prototype for something that really is unproven. Stephen Key, one simple idea. Paul from Sacramento says, I discovered my passion a few years back. I want to set up and run my own small private equity or hedge fund. To prepare myself for that, I invested myself and paid close to $100,000 to get an MBA from a top five business school, UC Berkeley Haas School of Business. My background's in computer engineering. I have a decent income of about $100,000 a year with good benefits. How do I transition into what I want to do? I have a wonderful, supportive wife and three kids. If I were single, I'd move to New York and start a new career. I'm praying for God's guidance and wisdom. Please help. Well, if you want to run, now now you say you want to set up and run your own small private equity or hedge fund. Location really isn't much of an issue with doing that. I mean, you're going to want to have clients in your specific area of expertise, whether they live in Seattle or Houston or Miami or New York. So I don't think location has a lot to do with it. I think this is something you can do on your own, but just start, start with what you have. Start small. Don't jeopardize the current position that you have. Again, look for a transition, but create a business plan where you see that you really do believe you can transition fully within 90 to 180 days. Now that may sound pretty quick. That's three to six months. But I think if you go longer than that, it starts to sap your emotional energy. You're already borrowing time from family and other areas of personal development. So see it as a three to six month transition. If you can really see that you can build your own small private equity or hedge fund and do it in that period of time, then by all means doing that. Now, the other option to that would be to go to work for a company where you're doing that inside their company. But you may be hesitant to build your clientele and all inside of another company like that. So if you really want to go on your own, then um, by all means, start small and just start building toward that now. Let me grab, um, let me grab one more here. Hi, Dan. This comes from Robin, California. Was wondering what you thought about approaching churches to ask if they would mention my service to their congregation. I was thinking this possibility since they fit my target audience. I would give a flat fee of each sale back to the church. So it'd be kind of like a fundraiser. Would this be tacky or unethical to try this tactic? Okay. So you have a service. Let's say that you do financial services or you sell real estate or you sell insurance. I mean, there's a whole lot of things. You shine shoes. Your market could be a church audience. Certainly churches have as many personalities as people do. Now, most of them are going to flat reject your idea in the way that you presented it here. A few of them will allow you to present something of value, like a seminar or workshop. You know, if you have little emphasis on them having to buy anything, a couple churches are going to allow you to buy ads, maybe in the church publications. And about two out of a hundred pastors will tell you to just make the checks out to them personally. Now, in general, I think it's a very poor marketing approach. There, there have been too many bad stories about churches recommending investment programs or the latest multi-level marketing deal out there I don't think they should promote directly. Now I pause there, a pregnant pause perhaps, because I say that having tons of churches that promote and run the 48 days to the work you love seminar in the churches. I mean, certainly I promote things to the churches that I think will benefit everybody there and they run it as curriculum. And we have colleges and universities that do that too. But I mean, we look at Beth Moore curriculum. I mean, she's made a fortune by selling curriculum directly to the churches and only to churches. Henry Blackaby, John Eldridge, I mean, Dave Ramsey with his 
financial peace. My gosh, Dave has made millions because his program will benefit the churches and they specifically target the churches. They just did. Dave just did a brand new DVD series, a brand new modified FPU that'll be going out. And it is specifically only for the churches. So there are ways to do it, but in the way that you describe here, and I suspect, you know, if it is like you sell insurance or real estate or something to just have them recommend it and for you to give them a commission or a little back end spiff on the back end, nah, that, that's not a good plan at all. You need to do something that makes it more a part of the, what the, the church would generally promote, how they're going to introduce new curriculum. If you're going to use that as your audience, but I suspect with what you're describing, my recommendation would be that you use something else as your marketing plan. Don't go there. There are too many opportunities to risk hard feelings that may come from trying to promote within a church. Well, there you go. Taking care of business. Hey, join us for some of our upcoming events. We've got a Coaching with Excellence event coming up here in a couple weeks. And then a Right to the Bank right after that. we got some exciting things we're planning for the fall. Love to see you here. Come get some of those free books and audios I'm talking about. Come see us at the sanctuary. Well, we're delighted you're part of this community. Jump in the 48days.net crowd to see what they're doing. As you continue being part of this group of exciting people who are finding or creating work that is meaningful, purposeful, and profitable. Have a great week.